This podcast is brought to you by the Prince Mahadon Award Conference in collaboration with the Swedish Institute for Global Health Transformation, FHI 360, the World Health Organization, the World Bank, the British Medical Journal, USAID, and Jonathan Foster of Foster Media. We must admit that we do not have the situation under control. I wanted to act as if the house was on fire. Because it is. Welcome to The World We Want, Youth Voices on Climate and Health. My name is Jonathan Foster, and on this podcast I speak to youth leaders and activists, not only about the reality of our current environmental and health crisis, but also about the possibilities, alternatives and ideas for transformation and for change. We find out what youth activists are doing, and we find out what you could do to help build the world we want. We must stop playing with words and numbers because we no longer have time. Hello. We all know that to build sustainable human societies that operate within planetary boundaries, we do not have, as Greta says in the intro, we do not have all the time in the world. We need to make changes and we need to make them now. In fact, yesterday would be perfect. In the first episode of this series, I spoke to global youth leaders about their hopes and fears for the then upcoming COP26. Well, COP26 has been and gone. So, did it come anywhere close to matching requirements, or should we just phase down our hopes and dreams? Hmm. But before we talk about expectations for the future, let's travel through time into the past. In 1972, 50 years ago, the United Nations Conference on the what was then called Human Environment was held in Stockholm, Sweden. For 11 days in June 1972, Stockholm was a magnet for everyone concerned with the environment. The meeting, first proposed to the United Nations by Sweden, and approved by the General Assembly in 1968, attracted worldwide attention. In four short years, the topic of the human environment had gone from the back pages of newspapers to make headlines on page one. The government of Sweden provided facilities for all of them. At Skarpneck, an abandoned airfield on the outskirts of town, it even set up a tent city for the many young people who could not pay for lodgings. Members of official delegations were supplied with new model Swedish cars. But this was a different kind of conference. The delegates were also offered the use of 200 bicycles, ecologically a more apt means of transportation. Well, if nothing else, we've definitely had an impact on accents in the last 50 years. You'll hear that again in a moment. This year, 2022, on the 2nd and 3rd of June, Sweden is hosting the Stockholm Plus 50 Conference. Now, this isn't just about celebrating 50 years of global environmental cooperation. It also aims to accelerate the implementation of the Sustainable Development Goals, the 2030 Agenda, the Paris Agreement on Climate Change, the Post-2020 Global Biodiversity Framework, 
and to encourage the adoption of green post-COVID-19 recovery. Wow, that sounds like quite an extensive list. But hold on, don't make that judgment yet. We'll come back to that a little later. You can find out more on www.stockholm50.global. That's five zero using the numbers. www.stockholm50.global. So let's get in our time machine and travel back to 1972 to hear a few words from Indira Gandhi, the then Prime Minister of India. Mrs. Gandhi to the rostrum. It is clear that the environmental crisis which is confronting the world will profoundly alter the future destiny of our planet. No one amongst us, whatever our status, strength or circumstance, can remain unaffected. She was completely right. No one, regardless of their status, has remained unaffected. And here's Kurt Waldheim, the then Secretary General of the United Nations. Ladies and gentlemen, everything is of concern to everybody in our deeply interdependent world today. The iron rule remains. Our world is one inseparable and interdependent. It is this world that is threatened by the impact of man's unplanned, selfish and ever-growing activities. No political system makes us immune to this threat. No level of economic development permits us to escape. We all face the challenge of equals, equally threatened, equally vulnerable. The crisis of human environment is a global crisis. So after 50 years of global environmental action, I think these speeches sound all too familiar. Here's Barry Commoner from the Center for the Biology of Natural Systems at Washington University. Someone is going to have to pay the debt and people are scrambling to see that the other fellow pays. So we're beginning to divide up and I think we begin to see uh, industry of labor and consumers beginning to take very sharp sides on these issues. It's become, I think, a very basic and quite dangerous political issue because it leads very quickly to fundamental concerns that we've tended to push under the rug. Uh, the question of the validity of the private enterprise system, for example. The question of uh, whether we can tolerate wars. Uh, questions of racial discrimination. Uh, these are things that uh, we tend to avoid talking about, but the environmental issue sort of casts a bright light on them, making them very difficult to avoid. So back in 1972, Kurt Valheim was talking about the fact that the world is deeply interdependent, you know, that we are all in it together. And Barry Commoner was talking about countries needing to pull together and take responsibility to face up to racism or war or who's going to actually economically pay for this crisis. And that was 50 years ago. Doesn't that sound strangely familiar? Okay, let's fast forward to the current time and to one of the opening speeches at COP26 by His Excellency Abdullah Shahid President of the UN General Assembly. We are facing an existential crisis. We have the capacity and resources to address this crisis, but we are simply not doing enough. We must be honest about this with ourselves, with each other, and with the rest of the world. 
We have had decades to argue the facts about climate change. Yet, we have still failed to act with the conviction and determination required. Excellency, six years ago in Paris, we celebrated an agreement that committed us to keeping global temperatures from rising above 1.5 degrees. We pledged to protect those most vulnerable, and we acknowledged that this was a planetary problem that no country could go alone. Yet since Paris, it has rained for the first time on Greenland summit. The amount of CO2 in the atmosphere has reached record levels. Heat waves have scorched countries around the world. Droughts, storms, forest fires, and floods have all become more intense, more recurrent, and more commonplace. And sea levels are rising, threatening small island states and coastal communities alike. My friends, we have the science. We have the resources. We agree on the urgency. What then is holding us back? My dear friends, only one variable remains, and it is us. We have to make the choice to address climate change. We have to choose the hard but necessary actions. We have to listen to the science and increasingly our global population who are demanding action. My dear, dear friends, we have run out of excuses. It is time to do the right thing. Abdullah Shahid says we're facing an existential crisis. We need countries to come together, to work together. After decades of a lack of conviction, it's time to do the right thing. Yes, exactly. Now here's a snippet of an opening speech from UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres. The six years since the Paris Climate Agreement have been the six hottest years on record. Our addiction to fossil fuels is pushing humanity to the brink. We face a stark choice. Either we stop it or it stops us. And it's time to say enough. Enough of brutalizing biodiversity. Enough of killing ourselves with carbon. Enough of treating nature like a toilet. Enough of burning and drilling and mining our way deeper. We are digging our own graves. Our planet is changing before our eyes, from the ocean depths to mountain tops, from melting glaciers to relentless extreme weather events. Sea level rise is double the rate it was 30 years ago. Oceans are hotter than ever and getting warmer faster. Parts of the Amazon rainforest now emit more carbon than they absorb. Recent climate action announcements might give the impression that we are on track to turn things around. This is an illusion. The last published report on national determined contributions showed that they would still condemn the world to a calamitous 2.7 degree increase. And even if the recent pledges were clear and credible, and there are serious questions about some of them, we are still careening towards climate catastrophe. Even in the best case scenario, temperatures will rise well above two degrees. 
So, as we open this much-anticipated climate conference, we are still heading for climate disaster. Young people know it. Every country sees it. Small island developing states and other vulnerable ones live it. And for them, failure is not an option. Failure is a death sentence. Excellencies, we face a moment of truth. Okay, so from ocean depths to mountain tops, things are getting worse. Even in the best case scenario, we are still heading for climate disaster. And the idea that we are on track to turn things around is an illusion. This from the UN Secretary General. Is it any wonder we need a powerful youth movement with real conviction to push for change? Now, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres is 100% right. Young people know we are still heading for disaster. And it is time to say, enough. That's why Stockholm Plus 50 is so important. Because, as he says, we are still facing that moment of truth. Now, a little earlier, I mentioned that Stockholm Plus 50 aims to accelerate the UN Sustainable Development Goals, the 2030 Agenda, Paris Agreement on Climate Change, the post-2020 Global Biodiversity Framework, and to encourage the adoption of green post-COVID-19 recovery. Now, that list doesn't sound so big and extensive now, does it? So let's just end part one with an incredible speech born from a personal journey dedicated to climate justice activism, a speech given at COP26 by India Logan Riley from Aotearoa. She is the co-founder of Tiara Fatu, a group of Maori and Pacifica youth uh, who are working for climate change solutions and indigenous sovereignty. This is not a speech given by a youth leader of tomorrow. This is a speech given by a leader of today. And just so you know, this speech is all of four and a half minutes long, but please, I know that's an eternity these days, but it's worth listening to every single word. My name is India, and I am from a nation called Ngātikahungunu on the east coast of the North Island of Aotearoa, colonially known as New Zealand. In February of last year, catastrophic climate change-filled wildfires tore their way across Eastern Australia. The smoke cloud was so big that the sun turned red in my own homelands, far from the east coast of Australia. At that time, I was supporting my younger brother in hospital, and the doctors told us that they were seeing higher amounts of people with breathing issues related to the smoke in the air. In that moment, our health was bound to the struggle of the land and people in another country. In the impacts of climate change, our fates are intertwined, as are the historic forces that have brought us together today. Before we embark on these two weeks of negotiations, it is important to reflect on how we ended up in this room, with thousands of other people masked up and poised to deliberate. And to do this, I must go back hundreds of years into the roots of imperialist expansion and the story of my own community. 252 years ago, invading forces sent by the ancestors of this presidency arrived in my ancestors' territories, 
heralding an age of violence and murder and destruction enabled by documents like the Do Doctrine of Discovery that were formulated in Europe. Land in my region was stolen by the British Crown in order to extract oil and suck the land of all its nutrients while seeking to displace my people and end our practices. The first time I personally experienced these violent processes was at 10 years old when the local council attempted to steal our community's land for the construction of a highway. And then after that, the New Zealand government stole the foreshore and seabed and offered it up for deep sea oil drilling the following year. These historic forces continue to shape my life and have brought me here. I have grown up in these negotiations, spending my 20s running through these halls, lobbying decision makers and staying up far past midnight hand stitching banners. Since my first climate talks in Paris, I've been giving the same speech. I've been applauded and awarded for conjuring emotive imagery of rising sea levels and yearly wildfires that my community continues to endure. Six years ago, I first spoke these stories into this space, and every year since, I have repeated the same words, wildfires, sea level rise, wildfires, suffering, sea level rise, biodiversity loss, sea level rise. Emissions continue to rise. I'm the same age as these negotiations. I've grown up, graduated, fallen in love, fallen out of love, stopped and changed a couple of careers along the way, all while the global north, colonial governments and corporations fudge with the future. Knowing that this history shows us that hands and minds made this present world, and so it is also hands and hearts and minds that can remake it. And it is indigenous and frontline communities that are leading this remaking. We're keeping fossil fuels in the ground and stopping fossil fuel expansion. We're halting infrastructure that would increase emissions and saying no to false solutions. In fact, in the US and Canada alone, indigenous resi resistance has stopped or delayed greenhouse gas pollution equivalent to at least one quarter of annual emissions. What we do works. In the face of mediocre leadership, indigenous peoples shine through. This is all to say that climate change is the final outcome of the colonial project. And in our response, we must be decolonial, rooted in justice and care for communities like mine who have borne the burden of the global North greed for far too long. I cannot put it more simply that, than that we know what we are doing. And if you aren't willing to back us or let us lead, then you're complicit in the death and destruction that is happening across the globe. Rights frameworks must be entrenched in the Paris rulebook. Finance must be redistributed from the likes of war games in the Pacific towards loss and damage in a just transition. And richer countries have to commit, commit to steep emissions reductions this decade, rather than palming off responsibility through carbon markets. And last but not least, land back oceans back. This is all part of following indigenous leadership. This is what keeping warming below 1.5 degrees looks like. This is an invitation to you. This COP, learn our histories, listen to our stories, honour our knowledge, and get in line or get out of the way. Kia ora. Thank you. So I think that speech perfectly echoes the speeches of 1972 we heard at the beginning, but it's also motivated by, as Antonio Guterres said, decades of a lack of true conviction and the realisation that time has run out. Get in line or get out of the way.
Okay, so in part one, we heard from the President of the United Nations General Assembly, Abdullah Shahid, who mentioned small island states. So let's start part two by hearing from Lavatilangi Seru. He is the Climate Justice Project Officer for the Pacific Islands Climate Action Network and the co-founder and coordinator of the Alliance for Future Generations. Now, all of the youth leaders in this episode have been on the podcast before, so if you think you recognise them, that's because you do. And if you don't recognise them, go back to the previous episodes and have a listen. So, Lave, could you give me a quick summary of your thoughts on COP26? Well, um, for someone who was born in 1992 when the UNFCCC discussion started in Rio, uh, it's taken way too long for the governments to act. We were disappointed with the outcomes from COP, you know, when we look at how loss and damage, especially, you know, something that we've been pushing for, and... Again, they've decided that we should have another dialogue. We've been having dialogues for the last 20 something years. We need developed countries to mobilize the financial uh, resources and support frontline communities. What will you know, another dialogue do? You know, it's, it's just going to take years and years uh, while communities are sinking, while people um, are suffering and livelihoods disrupted. And so there's a lot of work that needs to be done at these global multilateral spaces to continuously push them uh, and also to bring to the to the attention that we have island nations, we have islands that are going down underwater because uh, of your inaction. If you don't act, take action now, these countries could be underwater by 2050. We were disappointed with how um, the negotiations and the outcomes from, you know, action for climate empowerment. So, you know, this deals with public access to information, deals with um, capacity building and training, especially, you know, critical for, you know, resilience building. You need a whole lot of these things, you know, um, training and capacity building, uh, workshops, um, public access to information, and, and you know, and I think there's a few others, uh, including um, cooperation between countries uh, on how to, to address uh, climate change. And here's Maximo Musuko, founder of Eco House in Argentina. And I'll just quickly say here that many of these interviews were conducted before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But I spoke to Maximo after that. So that's why he mentions the war and some others don't. Okay. I would like to say first that if we are going to war right now, Russia against the West again, again, 2022, with all the human rights treatment we have, with all the peace treatment we have, with all the history we have, we are just admitting that we are not ready for all this big transformation. We had to solve a lot of basic issues before we think about changing the whole socioeconomic system as we know. That is the first reason of why we have this climate ecological crisis. So that I, I want to say because the first days of war, 
we were talking about this with a lot of youth groups and it was like, can you realize that we are facing the disappearing and extinction of hundreds of species and we are still fighting against each other for territory, for, I don't know, for whatever the reasons are, there's no excuse right now for war. Okay? Uh, COP26. I'm like in a time machine to COP26 because <laughs> so many happened since then. But but let's see. There are different things going on in events like COP. To start with, you have the official negotiations and the official stuff that it's going to be slow because more than 190 states, governments, countries have to decide how to transform their whole way of life towards a sustainable society. Big changes we need to do. And everyone wants to protect their own interests. So you have the official stuff. The surprising thing, knowing how everything works with the ethical, emotional, existential crisis that we have as humanity, would be that everyone would say, hey, let's get together and do this. Let's put all the money we have to change the world and do it everything more just and everything, etc., etc., etc. No? But but here's the thing, and this is totally my humble opinion, because I'm doing this since more than 10 years ago. There are optimistic things that are going on also and always are going on in this kind of events. You have then the official stuff. You have in other side the declarations, the big announcements. Probably a lot of them are bullshit, but also start moving things. The announcements move press, moves money, moves stocks, etc. And apart from all that, there's everything that goes around the events, the connection, the empowering youth, and also a business that wants to do good stuff. I know a lot of businesses that want to transform their metrics. Uh, so it's not all bad. Well, as usual, Maximo gets straight to the point. And in this particular episode, at least, it's nice to hear that things aren't all bad. In fact, Komal Kumar from Fiji, who is a member of the Sustainable Ocean Alliance as the Pacific Island representative and of the Alliance for Future Generations, she also thinks that although challenges are not being met, there are some reasons for optimism and some for pessimism. Oh, and by the way, the previous episode is dedicated to Kamal. So if you want to hear more from her, go back and listen to that one. COP26 was actually quite frustrating for uh, most of the small island developing states because of, you know, what was being discussed, the outcomes. But I guess the whole conversation around keeping it below 1.5 degrees, it's, it's, it's sort of still under discussions and nothing much has been done about it. And I guess... Um, one of the most frustrating outcomes from it was the whole conversation around leaders deciding on that they want to phase down the use of coals rather than, you know, phasing it out. So 
from our youth perspective, we had hosted a uh, a sort of like a pre-COP virtual gathering here in the Pacific in uh, September. So we had come up with a youth declaration as well that we really wanted the leaders to recognize at COP26. So the youths who traveled from Fiji, uh, New Zealand, Australia, who are uh, part of um, the Sustainable Ocean Alliance, the 350 Pacific uh, Network, they were able to actually present it to the Pacific leaders um, at COP26 itself. So, so that was also one of the big achievements where they were able to recognize the demands of the young people. Uh, one of the good outcomes that came out of it was, I guess, uh, the text or the uh, context around oceans where oceans has been adopted by UNFCCC and now it will be part of the agenda and you know, will be discussed at the next upcoming COP. And this year, we are, the UN will be hosting a oceans conference. And, and I know that there's an ocean conference that will be happening in Palau in April. So, so the whole focus around that and looking at oceans from a Pacific perspective, I feel that, that, that itself was a really big achievement for us. But then, and unfortunately, the last few days of COP26 and... The, the outcomes that happened and what was agreed upon. It, it was more towards the disappointing end compared to, you know, think, thinking of it as a success. Let's just get a quick word from Elizabeth Watuti. And don't forget, you can find out more about Elizabeth in the show notes or listen to the first episode in the series. Now, Elizabeth gave a fantastic speech at the opening of COP26, but I asked her how she felt personally, as a young person, about this lack of action. Yes, I am definitely frustrated by the lack of action. And the delayed action in itself is just a lot to take in as a young person who has been trying to push for real urgent change. And definitely, I think it is right for young people to feel angry, to feel frustrated, because these are things we have been demanding and really asking that we want to see real urgent change. We want to see bold action on the climate crisis. But still, we are not seeing any of that. What we are seeing right now is just more frustrations, I would say, and a lot of promises that don't end up you know, turning into action. And I think the only time we'll begin to not be frustrated is the time when we'll begin to live in a world where our leaders are also moving from commitments to real urgent action. So there's a lot of reasons that would make me despair as a young person. And especially because we have taken all of these years to demand for urgent action at the same time, we have been organizing, mobilizing, and also taking ground action. I personally focus a lot on nature-based solutions and a lot on nature restoration, where I ensure that I am also participating in tree growing. But on top of that, I've also been using my voice to really call out leaders and governments to do much more, because I believe that they are in better positions of power, that they can be able to do much, much more and be able to influence a lot of policies and actions right now. So it is reason enough to despair to see such a report like the IPCC that shows us that much of the change we have always wanted to see is still nowhere in the horizon. And I think 
it's reason enough to despair. Okay, that's enough with the despair. Let's stop here for a moment and try and frame a question with a thought experiment. Let me put it like this. On this episode, we've kind of travelled from 1972 right up to 2022. So let's imagine that someone who attended the Conference on the Human Environment, held way back in 1972, got into an actual time machine and travelled through time right up to the present day. Now, of course, our imaginary time traveller would notice all kinds of changes. Yes, accents have changed. Fashions, gender relations, the amount of screens we have, the amount of time we spend staring at them. The things we eat, the music we listen to, the cost of, well, the cost of absolutely everything. But now, imagine that our 1970s time traveller attended COP26. What would they expect? What would they notice? How would they feel? Would they be amazed at the progress being made, or would they be amazed at the eerie similarities? Today's youth leaders express fears and disappointment at the speed and extent of the needed changes. They say it's taking way too long for governments to act. They say get in line or get out of the way. So how would we explain to our imaginary time traveller what it is about our values and principles and institutions that's been holding us back. Why can't we make rapid and essential changes? So I asked youth leaders what's holding us back and what do we need to do to create change? Well, first, here's Lavatalangi again. Well, the institutions, um, I would say, you know, have built on colonialism, We've also seen that um, these institutions are still very much, you know, very gendered uh, and biased towards, you know, a certain um, gender in particular. So we haven't really seen, you know, very diverse uh, groups involved within institutions. We haven't really sort of seen, um, you know, for instance, indigenous groups uh, and, you know, conversations, you know, to be centered around solutions to the crisis that we're experiencing and, you know, giving them platforms for them to talk about, you know, what has worked through their own um, traditional uh, practices and, 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 and cultures. So, I, yeah, I, I still think that it's um, very Global North dominated. Uh, the voices of small island developing states, uh, of other climate vulnerable uh, countries have often been pushed aside, sidelined. Uh, so uh, I, I guess that's my uh, response to, to, to your question about the kind of institutions that we still have today. And here's Nathan Metenier from France. You can find out more about him in the show notes. He's been on the podcast, the first episode, and we will dedicate an episode to him in the future. But for now, here's Nathan. I think those who can change those values, and let's call it right, like the neoliberal kind of understanding of how society could work. I think to change those values and principles, um, you need to have different kind of people in, in power and, and coming from different kind of um, uh, roots and, 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 you know, kind of categories of, of societies. Um, and I think that would then change those values and principle because I, 
I think there is much, much more empathy. There is a much bigger understanding of what it means to, you know, suffer, um, what it means to be um, on the side, to be discriminated. And I think when we've experienced that, if you're in, in position of power, then you will change things. You will make sure that and then um, there's not just a small groups of people who get absolutely everything. And then we're all struggling on the side and, and you know, not knowing um, if we'll be able to, to kind of, you know, not lose our homes and not lose our... Um, islands, culture, we talk a lot about loss and damage, but the way which I think is so interesting, you know, it's not just like losing your home, you're lo losing your um, your property, but it's also like the thing we can't count, like, you know, culture, language, um, um, all these things that are so important um, to identity as well. Um, so yeah, I think that's, that's what we need to change those values. I don't think they can be changed in any other ways um, than by having different people also in power. So I think that's for me, that's why I'm, I'm just thinking that in our theory of change, I don't see any other way than having extremely well-organized and strong civil society fighting for climate justice. And therefore not just asking for more climate action or conservation, because that makes absolutely no sense if you're not at the same time trying to tackle world's inequalities and, and those issues of you know, wealth and so on. it's very important to think globally and act locally. We believe in pluralism. We believe that there are more than one way of doing things right. Secondly, uh, I believe in a system that promotes universal fraternity, like no distinction of race, color, gender, class, and whatever. I also believe in a system that promotes free thinking. We should promote a free way of thinking. And if we promote the fraternal, universal fraternity, and we promote pluralism, that there are more than one thing to do things right, with those three, just with those three, we would be better. And also, after all these years, doing, doing what I do, I realized that I didn't knew how to identify myself with people. When I do, a, for example, a, a talk or a, I go to a conference, they introduce me. Hey, here comes Maximo, environmentalist, climate activist, founder of Echo House. And I realized that I'm not only that. If you say to me, I'm an environmentalist, what does that mean? I'm not only working in climate change. I'm working in gender equality, in poverty, in, the, the, in all the SDGs and more. So how do I identify myself with people? How do I define myself? So I find a way. I have three principles. Take care of people. Take care and protect the earth, the air, the water, and the biodiversity that inhabits the planet. And share justly. Those are my principles. But yeah, the system that, that I hope we develop one day, it's uh, a real democracy. Yes, a real democracy sounds perfect, especially considering the current climate. 
both environmentally and politically. Now, on this episode of The World We Want, Youth Voices on Climate and Health, we've heard from youth leaders who want more diversity within the corridors of power. They want to open those doors to people of different class backgrounds and genders, to open the doors to indigenous expertise and to marginalised people. They want a more robust and well-organised civil society fighting for climate justice and tackling inequality. They want to create universal fraternity and to look into ourselves as individuals to try and unlock a truly ethical approach to the planet and to each other so that one day we can develop this, yeah, real democracy. In all of these episodes so far, I've talked to passionate and dedicated people fighting for justice. And every one of them is asking for help and support from leaders and governments and from fellow human beings. That means fellow human beings just like you and me. So what can we all do together to turn despair into joy? Because we do not have a time machine and we do not have a lot of time. So there you go, another group of brilliant youth justice campaigners here on The World We Want, sharing their views on climate and health. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on next month's episode. And if you like the podcast, please share it on your social networks, because as you know, everything we do today shapes tomorrow. So why not start by sharing? Thanks for listening. We must stop playing with words and numbers because we no longer have time.